Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. It's our NIL hour. And I'm joined today, my name is Terrence Sharma, obviously, but I'm joined today by uh, Mike Lawson. And we have a special guest, Mike. Yeah, we do. My good buddy in law school, Steve Eichner. He's an associate at a firm down in New York City, but he is the co-founder for Atlas Sports, an NIL company that is you know rapidly growing, and we wanted to get his thoughts on here. So Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to be here. Nice to see you again, Mike. Yeah, good to see you. It's been, it's been a while. You know, the last time I saw you was probably right before COVID because I was like right at the end when everything kind of the whole world shut down. But yeah, it's, it's good to see you and I'm glad we were able to get you on the podcast. Likewise, nice to meet you, Steve. We're really excited to have you join us today. We're going to talk about Atlas, get uh, the background of that venture and you can tell us more about that. We're going to talk a little Deion Sanders, Colorado, big uh, Buffalo Exodus going on over there, Virginia passing a high school NIL rule, and Bama baseball, huge story that is really rocking a couple of the worlds that our podcast dabbles in, the gambling world and the uh, the college sports world. As always, our podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. Themis Bar Review, best bar prep company in the galaxy. Mike, you use Themis. And what code can our listeners use to save themselves some money on the best bar review possible? CD Themis 500. CD Themis 500. And you will save $500 on your bar prep. If you're getting to this point, though, and you haven't already gotten bar prep for this year's bar exam, chop, chop. It's very close. I'm sure you're in finals and you're not worried about that right now, but you're going to need it. So before you you jump on to anything, we recommend, highly recommend that you go with Themis, best bar prep company, CD Themis 500. And by the way, you actually don't have to worry about it. I didn't worry about it until after July the 4th. And because I followed the Themis program, I was able to pass with flying colors. So Well, you at least need to buy a bar prep company. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And you need to save $500 with our code. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Steve, again, just thanks for joining us. We want to just pick your brain a little bit about, you know, what Taryn and I have been doing the last couple of months is we really wanted to focus a, a portion of Conduct Detrimental onto the name, image, and likeness space. We've covered it endlessly since, you know, the NIL world opened up July 2021. So, you know, we we've been we've been covering it nonstop since, you know, the California bill, Florida imposed, you know, finally enacted it. And we saw July of 2021 where the uh, wild, wild west kind of happened for the NIL space. So I remember, you know, when you first texted me that you were kind of jumping on this, you were starting an NIL company. Kind of take us through that process of of how you know how that came to be, and maybe some of the steps that 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 you were taking with you and your partners to kind of form Atlas Sports. Yeah, sure. So you mentioned I do have a, a few partners. Most of us, three of the four of us, were college athletes ourselves. And when we saw NIL coming down the pipe, um, we looked at it as an opportunity to help empower athletes um, that now are in the position that we used to be. Uh, granted, I was just a, a Division three baseball player and uh, had no earning potential as far as NIL goes, but they, they were Division one guys, and, and we've all heard the stories that were happened pre-NIL where there would be athletes who had their eligibility impacted in some way for violating these strict amateurism rules that the NCAA enforced prior to July 2021, like you said. In my mind, NIL exists now due to decades of 
what really amounted to exploitation of student athletes. Early on in the 60s and 70s, college sports really was not the big business that it started to become. But as we got closer to the modern day, it started to become obvious that there are a lot of people and entities that are monetizing this sport, getting wealthy off of it. And that included everybody except for the student athletes who were really the product. So in starting Atlas, we really wanted to try to act in a way that was consistent with the spirit of NIL, which was really to empower the athletes. So, I mean, we, we started by taking on a couple of individual athletes and representing them as their agent in their pursuit of NIL opportunities. And we actually made the decision early on that we were going to take little or nothing by way of fees. We thought that a lot of agents who started in this space were kind of just piling on to that old sort of philosophy of the exploitation of athletes. How can I use these athletes and their talents and now their market potential uh, to enrich myself? Uh, that's not really what we're interested in. When it comes to the business side of things, uh, we actually operate not only as athlete representatives, but on the other side, where I come in more with the traditional legal stuff, we do brand agreements. We consult with businesses on more of a local basis, businesses that are around the institutions where our athletes attend and play sports that maybe were not involved in NIL, didn't know what it was, have just heard of it and want to get involved and may not have the resources or the wherewithal to get involved. So uh, we try to team up um, with those corporate partners, help them get involved, consult for them. And that creates some good synergy between our athletes that are they're looking for their first NIL deals and these companies that they're looking to get involved in the space. Yeah, I see uh, your website. It's very slick. I encourage everyone to check it out. It's atlassports.co. We'll link it in the bio, the show notes. And you really do showcase the athletes that you have signed here so far. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? How did you identify student athletes that you wanted to work with? There's a couple different factors that we look at. I'll start by saying my partners have a lot of experience in scouting and in talent identification and development by virtue of their lives in professional sports. So that brings us uh, a long way as far as starting to narrow down what sort of caliber of athlete um, are we looking for. The other thing, of course, is just marketability. There's a lot of things that go into that in the modern day. I think marketability can be affected by someone's social media presence, their popularity amongst fans and in the local area. And we also wanted to focus on the athletes that may not be part of that top 1% or less that everyone talked about at the beginning of NIL that has the multi-million dollar potential to work with the national brands. That only applies to a very small percentage of athletes. But I think where NIL can do really good work is on a more local basis in these local communities where there are diehard fans or there's local business owners, local entrepreneurs, local car dealerships, restaurants, et cetera, that want to support their athletes, their athletic programs. And a lot more athletes can participate in those sorts of opportunities than the, the deals with the, the national companies that pay some of these people millions of dollars. You talk about these local companies. I, I thought of this too, you know, when, when we were both at Syracuse, that was my idea and understanding, right? Like it's easy for like Syracuse is a, is a college city. There's no pro sports there. There, there are some, you know, we've got some minor league sports there, but you know, 
all in all, like the 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 city of Syracuse and the surrounding suburbs is like all in on college football, college basketball, Syracuse athletics. So I'm thinking like a lot of like the local places, right? Like we've got obviously in Syracuse, we had Wegmans. We've got a lot of different local places that would be, you know, pure Syracuse, you know, bleed orange type of entities, right? How amenable are these companies? You say, you know, they want to support these athletes. They want to, they want to support their local colleges and things like that. But are they hesitant because of NIL and the space that this is right now? Is there issues where they, they think that it might actually harm the schools that they don't want to kind of dip their toes in this? Yeah, I think we find that it, it depends on a couple of things. Of course, different businesses have a different appetite for marketing. Some have a larger appetite than others, specifically when it comes to sports and college sports. A place like Syracuse is interesting because people take the college athletics very seriously there, like you said. And I think they also, as a result of that, operate cautiously because the last thing they want to do is have make the community frustrated uh, as a result of something that they've done that's negatively impacted the athletic program. I think one big thing is the institution and how it handles NIL and whether it embraces it and is very supportive and encourages its athletes and the community to get out there and engage and create a big marketplace. I'm not sure you've seen that in Syracuse specifically. I don't think that market's necessarily lived up to its potential when it comes to these things. I think with time that will come because I do think Syracuse is ripe for it. But for example, we have a, a good basketball player. He just finished his freshman season. I believe he was Mr. Basketball in New York his senior year of high school, Jaquan Sanders, a guard for Seton Hall. And the local business owners around Seton Hall have been great. They've been supportive. They've always listened. They've always taken meetings. They've explored different options. And I think he's enjoyed at least just his first freshman campaign there. Similarly, a smaller school, uh, USF, University of South Florida, we've got a couple of athletes there, a men's soccer player and a football player who just graduated. The local businesses around that community were also great. So uh, it just depends. Sometimes you're dealing with small business owners, and that's a case-by-case basis. But I think it's big for the university to send a strong message to the community and let them know this is something we support and we want you to invest in to help our student athletes have the best experience. Do you have more of a difficult time with the schools then in that context where you you find it, you know, say you have an athlete that approaches you that that you want to do deals with, but obviously you got to go through the school and, and, and there's some sort of clearing process there. You know, do you find you have more of a difficult time with, you know, whether it's a compliance officer or office of general, you know, general counsel or something like that? We get very different reactions from the institutions. So we try to be extremely transparent. Our number one goal is protecting the interests of the student athlete. The last thing we want to do is put them in a position where their eligibility is at risk or they're subject to any even just internal punishment or reprimand or anything like that. So we're very transparent with the athletic department and they respond in a variety of ways. Some are inherently more protective of their student athletes and really want to vet us and make us sign forms in addition to those that are just required to register in that state as an athlete agent. Others are extremely hands-off and embrace it and say, great, as a matter of fact, anytime you want to use a facility or use the intellectual property of the university in your marketing materials, just let us know and we'll get that cleared. We really want our student athletes to enjoy this process. So there's, there's a wide array of reactions. And I think you see that outside of Atlas, of course, I see that across the country. And it's going to be really interesting to see how these things 
play out because everyone's taking a different approach. I see, you know, on your website and Taryn, you're right. It is, it's very sleek, nice black and white. It's very easy to follow. I I noticed you, you've got a very diverse, you know, group of athletes. You've got, you know, women's lacrosse, you've got, you know, football, men's basketball, men's soccer, women's soccer, baseball, gymnastics, softball, volleyball. You've got a good array of different athletes, but I do see here too, and you just mentioned it. You got two athletes from USF and then you have two teammates from West Virginia soccer, women's soccer. Are you seeing a trend towards athletes, you know, encouraging other athletes to get involved in NIL, right? right. You've got these two teammates at West Virginia, right? Are they, you know, going to the rest of their, you know, their soccer teammates and being like, hey, like you, you should jump on this too. Yeah, 100%. I think the student athletes generally, it's different than the institution's Almost universally, the student athletes are enthusiastic about participating in NIL. When they see an Atlas athlete, for example, that has either signed a deal and is making some sort of money or is just receiving merchandise or something like that in compensation for for their marketing efforts. We've heard stories, for example, we had a partner, Tomahawk Shades, that was sending sunglasses to some of our athletes and their, their teammates would ask them during or after practice whenever I saw them saw them wearing them hey where did you get those can i get some how does this work so yeah it's a word of mouth thing i mean you know how college kids are i know it's almost like guerrilla marketing in that sense yeah exactly i think that the student athletes have been great uh, in that sense they, they really do embrace it they're they're very responsive they want to hear what we have to say and how we can help and that's re- ultimately what we're out to do is help them i think that this generation of student athletes also are pretty savvy in terms of how much they know uh, about this area, even though it's been developing quickly. Can you tell us a little bit about what sorts of educational materials that you've engaged with and produced for your student athletes and also for the universities? We've tried to take a sort of very general, and I want to use the word holistic, I don't know if that's appropriate, but approach to advising our athletes. Although some may disagree with me, it doesn't seem like it's been that long since I was in college. And I've really just started my career after graduate school in 2020. So I'm sort of fresh off of the process and my partners are too, of of being a college athlete, trying to map out what's next for the rest of your life. We try to provide educational resources in the technical sense, I serve as a resource for them whenever they have questions about the Division I NCAA manual, for example, any of the state laws or the institutional policies that may affect them and their dealings in NIL. We're always available to answer those questions. But uh, in the more general sense, we try to be available to them to just be resources for how to, how to navigate a career as a student athlete what sort of things you want to think about when you discuss something like the transfer portal or whether it's utilizing a COVID year and getting a master's degree and and what may emerge as an opportunity in the professional world after college. So we try to be true advisors and advocates in that sense. And then as far as the institutions that you asked about go, we have yet to sign a contract or a relationship with any institutions um, in the same way that I think Influencer is the name of one company. And then uh, there's another one that I'm, I'm forgetting doors. of right now. Yeah, Open Doors, exactly. But we've tried to um, offer similar services. We know that some athletic departments are eager to get in to NIL and they have resources at their disposal. And I think a lot of NIL, what you're seeing now, 
is about the allocation of those resources. Whereas in the past, athletic departments would take money from boosters and apply it to new facilities, the new coaches, nutritional coaches, new dorm rooms, things like that, that they thought would attract talent. Now you can attract talent in a much more direct way. And that's to tell the people who were making those more traditional donations to your program that, hey, maybe it would make sense to, without, of course, involvement technically from the university, to create some sort of collective or some sort of mechanism where these funds are being reallocated and dispersed as NIL deals for potential incoming student athletes. I think that's a philosophy that's going to become more popular. And uh, I think athletic departments are going to come around to that idea. And if we can help them do that, certainly open to it. So shifting gears a little bit, you guys mentioned Syracuse, and it is a new era up there with Jim Beheim moving on. There was some some big news, uh, I, I guess, last month that Adam Weitzman, who has been a, a pretty prolific supporter of Syracuse athletics, decided that he was no longer going to support the program because he felt like Basically, the vibes were off. He wasn't getting the uh, the appropriate reaction that he thought that he should be getting from the chancellor of the university. Just you you spent time there. What was your reaction to that news? And do you think that that's a mistake on behalf of the university not embracing Weitzman? Yeah, you know, I think that that's a complicated question. I think Weitzman's departure is unfortunate for fans, whether people liked him or not. He did have a lot of resources and tried to use them for the good of the athletic programs. And I think the fans are thankful from that. From a compliance perspective and from an institutional perspective, I, I understand some of the reluctance on behalf of the university. The guidance on NIL from the NCAA, it seems like it's been ever-changing and in some ways even inconsistent regarding the involvement of these boosters. But I know that you guys saw the inquiry at Miami with respect to the recruitment of the Cavender Twins to the women's basketball team. Uh, and John Ruiz, a prominent booster, high-profile booster down there. Not a booster. He's going to see yeah. Not an NIL punishment either. <laughs> no, self-imposed. But I think that sort of inquiry scares Syracuse away a little bit. I think if the NCAA is going to dig its teeth in here and do anything to sort of curb the Wild West behavior, they're going to go after the more high-profile actors, such as John Ruiz and, and potentially an Adam Weitzman. That said, it's a different question whether an institution should really care about the threat of NCAA action in these matters. If, if you're confident that what you're doing is in compliance with the current rules, you wonder, even if they're not, whether the NCAA has teeth. It, it all remains to be seen. It feels like the clock is sort of ticking on the NCAA in its current form. Some schools, even pre-NIL, took the stance of win now and apologize later, right? I mean, you knew about players getting paid well before it was legal, and it's still not legal pay for play. But now even more so, it seems like some institutions are taking sort of that approach. Let's, let's do what we can to, to get the wins, to make the money, to win championships. And if the NCAA comes after us, it might be one of their last efforts. I don't think the NCAA in its current form will exist forever. It worked out for North Carolina. I mean, you can make the argument it worked for Louisville before NIL. I mean, technically, they didn't win that national championship, but we all remember it. It happened. 
and they recruited well for years after that. So who knows? Do you think what Syracuse is doing is too too guarded? Do you think that they're losing potential? You know, obviously we just saw Jesse Edwards leave. That's that's huge because I mean, I almost feel like a lot of the offense was run through Jesse last year for Syracuse. And I mean, defensively too, that's a big loss for them. So, you know, there was a lot of international issues there too, with potential deals that wouldn't have worked because of his, his international visa, student visa, but also, I mean, there, there's, you know, JG threes on the way out. There, there are a lot of other athletes that are taking, you know, a stab at the NIL market with the transfer portal and, you know, accessible NIL deals. Do you feel like Syracuse, you know, being that it is already difficult to recruit in Syracuse because it's tough to get a basketball team put together in the north that is the Syracuse, you know, who wants to come up here and play in the in the cold, wintry north? Do you think that they're hindering themselves by doing this? Yeah, it's an interesting point. That's one piece that is also relevant here. I'm not so convinced as some fans are that Syracuse would push a person like Adam Weitzman away and have no contingency plan in place. I know we've heard from the collectives in Syracuse and they say it is only an emerging market and there's not a ton of activity, but there's obviously something that is still attractive about Syracuse basketball to some recruits. I mean, uh, you see in the transfer portal, whether NIL was a factor in this or not, what at one point was the top recruit or top transfer um, as far as some rankings were concerned, and J.J. Starling ultimately signed with Syracuse. I know he's a Syracuse local. I know he's got close connections with the, the current iteration of the coaching staff. Same with, with Chance Westry, who's transferring in from Illinois. Also, it, things look fairly promising on the high school recruiting trail for Syracuse. So I don't want to believe that the athletic department is being so guarded as to have nothing in place. I don't think the, the Weitzman decision, if you want to call it that, or, or the Weitzman separation is indicative of some complete prohibition on any NIL activity. But I do think overall, it would help them to speed up and, and sort of catch the pace of some of the other programs that they want to compete with at the highest level in college basketball. I think they're certainly lagging behind, but maybe NIL is not the most important piece for some of these student athletes that are making their decision either in transfer or out of high school. You and I both, when we were there, we worked in the, the Syracuse compliance office and we saw kind of the inner workings of the athletic department. I feel like some of the some of the comments that Weitzman was making, at least to me, just from just from my firsthand experience, didn't make sense to me about, you know, that that Syracuse was giving him the cold shoulder. They you know refused to return his calls and things like that. I don't know if that was a tactic that they wanted to do or were trying to do with Weitzman. But you're right. I, I do see the, the NIL collectives coming about in Syracuse. I think it's what the 315 Foundation. There are a couple that are moving forward. I think Syracuse is still a popular market. They haven't had the, the quite the success they've wanted to in the last few years. Even in the years they make the tournament, it feels like they shouldn't have, or they really kind of just snuck in. I'm hopeful that something kind of pops up. But, but at the same time, Weitzman was fun for, like you said, for the fans. I mean, Weitzman would bring in. He had a, a Rolodex of all of these famous people where he would just have you know different people sitting i mean he had tom brady he had julian edelman like he had he had like in jimmy fallon like he had unbelievable guests that would just come and sit with him courtside and he says he's pulling off that too do you think that's going to impact you know like i feel like a lot of the times like students right would you know the student section would get absolutely packed because they would know somebody was coming to sit courtside with adam weitzman 
I do think it will affect fans. That's why I said as a fan, whether you like him or not, um, you're not, you're not very happy about the separation, but again, we don't really know what happened as far as all the reporting that I saw, there was no real conversation between whether it was the chancellor or the compliance department and Adam Weitzman that said, you can no longer do this. It sounded to me like he, he really wasn't just feeling the love. He wasn't feeling embraced. And, and you mentioned that he may have even said that to you. Part of me wants to believe that from a compliance perspective, maybe that's not the completely correct approach. But for a while here at the beginning of NIL, the guidance from the NCAA was pretty clear that institutions should not be organizing these NIL affairs for their student athletes. It should not be going through them. And if Adam Weitzman wanted them to be more prominent and embrace him in a more, I guess, loving way, maybe the compliance department felt like that, that brings too much attention. That is too risky. There's too much exposure there, especially when a couple months later, the guy is flying a high school basketball player on a private jet to a Syracuse game a few days before the, the first non-booster, non-NIL violations uh, came down in Miami. So I don't know. I don't think it, it's too clear cut. I'd love to have Adam Weitzman around and, and let him do his thing. But if he wanted so much support from the athletic department, I don't think he was ever going to get it. Yeah, that's definitely fair. I, I would probably agree with that. I think that he might have been looking for guidance that he was never going to get. So I, I think that's totally fair. Just a, a, a short, non-legal, non-NIL, is Syracuse going to have a good team this year? And and they're definitely going to dominate Duke, at the very least. Yeah, I, I can tell you, um, I've been to a lot of Syracuse-Duke matchups at the the former Carrier Dome, now, now the JMA Wireless Dome. And That's the only game you guys pack it for. <laughs> Now, that is a little offensive considering you've only seen it 2014 and later. The real diehards know Duke is just a blip on the radar after decades and decades of great rivalries with UConn, Georgetown, Villanova, etc. We packed it, packed it for many more games than you want to believe, Taryn. But yeah, I think it depends on one thing. Can Syracuse get a center in the transfer portal? It's a huge hole in the roster right now. Also, the second thing it largely turns on is whether Judah Mintz comes back to college and does not declare formally for uh, the NBA draft and waive his ability to come back to college. So if Jude is back um, and he's in the backcourt with JJ Starling, there's, there's somebody viable there at center. Uh, I think the team's promising. And yeah, of course they're going to give Duke a beatdown when they play him at the dome. Yes. That's, that's how things have gone. Starling's a good player. Uh, Duke recruited him fairly heavily coming out of high school. It actually hurt to whiff on Starling in the first wave of his recruitment. I mean, he's a, he's a Baldwinsville kid, which is a suburb of Syracuse. I know he went, played his prep ball, yeah, in the Midwest right there um, near Notre Dame. So that probably swayed things a little bit. But he's back where he belongs. Don't worry. He'll haunt Duke for a few more years in conference. <laughs> I'm excited to see it. Are they going to play zone? Is the zone dead? Yeah, what's Coach Osher going to do? It sounds like I'm not ready to write the 2-3 zone's name on a tombstone yet, but it might be close. He's talking a lot about high pace, up and down. That could mean some form of a press back into the zone. I think he's used the term versatility a lot. I think part of that's out of respect to Coach Beheim, and he's not going to come in months after his retirement and say, I'm scrapping the defense that he built for 47 seasons. But yeah, I don't think we can expect to see half as much zone as we have over the last several decades. 
Speaking of new eras, you talked about Syracuse. You mentioned uh, Seton Hall. Colorado has a new era with Coach Prime at the head. And Dion made quite an entrance, right? He said, uh, I'm bringing my luggage and, and it's Louie. And basically encouraged a lot of those players to hit the portal. Well, they did. 80% of last year's roster is not returning to Boulder. What were your takes on that? You think that this is a good thing, a bad thing, that guys can't play out their years at the school where they wanted to go? You know, it's interesting because I told you our approach to NIL was always about sort of student-athlete empowerment and how it can be good for the student-athlete Same with the transfer portal. It can be good with the student athlete to have these sort of restrictions on their athletic experience lifted, give them the ability if they're in a disadvantageous position to go somewhere else, seek a more promising position. That becomes different when you flip the perspective and say now it's a coach who's utilizing the transfer portal in a way that affects student athletes potentially negatively. It's hard to say that you want it or you can't have it both ways. So this is, this is part of the world we live in now. I think ultimately the transfer portal is best for student athletes. Now that's not to say every student athlete should utilize it. I think the student athletes still need to make really intelligent decisions about how they utilize the transfer portal and realize the grass is not always greener. But hey, if your head coach is telling you uh, you're not first or second on the depth chart, then I mean, I think it's fair game to go ahead and put your name in the portal. Uh, the NCAA doesn't eliminate any of your eligibility. There's there's an automatic first-year waiver. So take that opportunity and go make the most of it elsewhere. From Coach Prime's perspective, I think he's going to build a strong program. I think people want to play for him. I think he's going to drive NIL activity to Colorado. And listen, it's fair game now. So if we believe in these policies, NIL and transfer portal otherwise, it's hard to say when it's used in this way that it's disadvantageous. I think it's all fair play. I agree with that. I, I just... I know that the the talk is just going to be awful if because I don't think that they're going to be super good this year. I think they're going to lack a lot of depth. I think they'll probably win seven or eight games. And and if that's the case, I, I think that the narrative is is just going to be heinous around him and saying that he ran all of these kids out of town when um, you know people got to go where they're where they're wanted and and needed. And, and I think that this is probably mostly that people leave when new head coaches come in all the time. Yeah. And that's exactly right. I think, I mean, Colorado made a coach in change, made it, made a change at the head coach because they have expectations for their football program and the roster and the way that it was currently constructed was in their minds, not meeting that expectation. So in everyone's who, minds, right? They they won like yeah. what? One game? Two? No, no games? Right. You want you right. want to talk about you want to talk about if they if they're gonna do well. It doesn't even matter. They can't do worse than last year. They were one mm-hmm. and eleven and got outscored by like four hundred and fifty points. Right. I mean, there's 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 it's only up from here, which I think is in Dion's favor in this sense. I hope so. I like him. I do too. And I think what it does is it shakes up the NIL world because and recruiters are going buck wild because they're like, what the hell is he doing? You know, the next, I think the next highest team that has uh, as many scholarship players that have left the program, granted they've lost 53 scholarship players since December, since Deion Sanders was hired, they've lost 53 scholarship players. The next highest is Ole Miss with 32. 
And that at, at that stage, they were like, that's crazy. I think Oregon's also at 32. Like, that's a lot, over 30. But 50 is unheard of. So these recruiting coaches, and I was looking through the athletics um, article today, and they were interviewing, like, every single recruiter from, like, ACC, Pac-12. They're like, they don't know what to think because – Everybody has feared the transfer portal in conjunction with NIL because somebody had a better opportunity for NIL. But here's a situation where a coach is like, leave, like he's gutting the team where he's like, it's like my way or the highway. And these kids are can't get out of the, the program fast enough. So, you know, the fact that he's doing all of this is like it's encouraging players to potentially come to a coach that they want to play for. They want somebody that's going to give them strict guidance, the prowess of Deion Sanders as an individual, as a professional athlete that he, that he is, is encouraging enough to get these athletes to come. And, you know, same thing in the article, like some of these people are talking about, like, is the sum of what they, what they've lost going to equal or be greater to the sum of what is coming in? And I think because of how bad they were last year, they're going to have some good talent that comes in. They can't be worse than last year. I just don't see it. But Steve, in situations like this, like say, like, I mean, this is a mass exodus, but like situations like this, you have an athlete that comes to you that says, you know, should I toy with the transfer portal? Uh, Are they looking, are they seeking advice in conjunction with NIL stuff? The athletes that we currently have signed, yes, on some occasions, we're not particularly eager to make pitches or to offer that sort of advice to people that have not entered the transfer portal yet or are in the transfer portal and actually looking Um, just because there are a lot of very specific rules as far as inducements go to transfer. And like you said, sort of the equivalent of of a tampering rule in the NBA. And we don't really want to encourage that or be used as a vehicle for any of that. But yes, our, our current student athletes that we have signed, um, they, they ponder the idea openly and they ask us about it and, and we give them the honest feedback. And one thing that we tell them, which is relevant to the Deion Sanders situation, is at the end of every season, typically in college sports, you have an exit interview or the equivalent of an exit interview. And you've got to listen to hear what that head coach has to say what, what is your place on the team in next year and in the coming seasons? And do you think that that's the best opportunity to develop your career in the optimal way? And the good thing about the transfer portal is it gives people the ability to evaluate that honestly and do what's in their best interest without fear of having to sit out a year or any repercussions from the NCAA. I think the other thing about this is how fast it needs to happen, right? This meeting that Dion had was you know, a couple months ago. I think it was, it was in January, maybe, that he was like, it's in my way of the highway, essentially. And, you know, 18 guys go to the portal that day, 30 by the end of the week. And now they're down 53 scholarship athletes. The The speed of the transfer portal is so key here. And I think, in, in again, in that athletic article, they, they interviewed Lincoln Riley about what he did with USC. And he was like, this is happening you know, so rapid that you can't really truly evaluate the player. They're more evaluating the person where they're like calling references, calling multiple references. Like, is he a good person, good, you know, overall person? And then the athletics will kind of come later where, you know, he was Lincoln uh, Riley said like, like there were some that they didn't even do an on-field evaluation where they were really just, he's like, sometimes we fly him out. Sometimes we don't, we have to make these snapshot decisions where we got to, we got to sign him because if we don't, somebody else will. So I think the speed of this too, of what Dion's going to do. And, and, and I'll pitch this to, to either of you, you know, whatever you think, you know, 
Deion Sanders goes on to Pat McAfee last week, and he's very, very confident. I mean, Deion Sanders is confident in and of itself. You know, besides this, he's he's very, you know, he's got a lot of bravado. But when it comes to, you know, his program here at Colorado, he is very confident that he's got a lot coming. He's got a lot of players coming in. They already have 21 transfer coming in. He's got a lot, you know, working in, you know, in the works. And he's like, people don't know what's actually coming. You know, that, that kind of sparks some questions, especially given NIL tampering, different things that, you know, we're seeing as a result of the wild, wild west of NIL. Do you, either of you fear that there is something potentially nefarious happening here? Nefarious in what sense? Do you think that Dion is, is actually doing any you know inducements tampering you know getting people to come to Colorado because it needs to be so quick and he's fighting power five schools for these top athletes Colorado is a power five school also but I don't think that my feeling is that Dion is not doing anything that is not being done at other schools I think that given the this current state of enforcement that schools that are highly competitive that have the infrastructure to recruit in this manner. I think that they're operating in in that way, but you know, I I'm not totally plugged in, so I'm not sure. What do you think, Steve? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I think we've seen, like it goes back to the conversation earlier where I mentioned the different approaches schools are taking. I think when it comes to a guy like Deion Sanders, he's probably able to create some small degree of detachment from any NIL deals that are happening with with incoming student athletes, whether you think that that's proper or ethical or should be considered tampering is another question. But there's agents that that are doing these things all the time where I've seen, for example, in some contracts, technically, of course, there are no inducements allowed. In other words, an NIL deal cannot be contingent on a student athlete attending a specific academic institution. But I've seen that language specifically written in a contract that says no terms of this contract are shall be considered to be an inducement for attendance at a university. But then in the next line, the terms of this contract are contingent on the student athlete residing within 10 miles of, let's say, Boulder, Colorado for the next two years. So there are ways that you can sidestep some of those rules. Some of it may come across as disingenuous. But like Taryn said, with, with the current state of enforcement, I think the priority for a lot of schools goes, get it done, build a roster, win games, and we'll fight your battles if the NCAA comes knocking. But so far they haven't. So I can't blame a, a guy like Deion Sanders for putting together the best roster possible at all costs. I agree. And I, I think that he almost doesn't have to engage in the nefarious thing, right? He has that that cachet already. He doesn't need to do it. That, I, I saw that the, he doesn't need to do it. Yeah, you're right. His son is heavily engaged in social media work. I think that any student athlete would be really happy to have their highlights kind of blown up in that way. So I don't think that he's stepping out of bounds. At least I hope not. Yeah, that's the thing with, with Dion. Maybe he's a bad example because, I mean, yeah, money can be an inducement, but it's easy for a student athlete to say, what inducement? I want. I wanted to go play for Coach Prime. His program looks awesome, and you can't blame a kid for saying that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, talking about stepping out of bounds here, uh, we'll transition to uh, the latest in the college space, not necessarily NIL. Alabama, Alabama baseball. We've got some hot topic here 
where Alabama fires their head coach, Brad Bohannon, amidst this suspicious betting activity that's still developing. We, we saw a bombshell article come out ESPN three days ago. And what kind of happened was there was a, a, a large bet on the LSU-Bama baseball game that was a straight bet for LSU to win, which kind of tipped off some investigations, some sports gaming monitors, and they started conducting an investigation. Well, lo and behold, today, CBS uh, and, and multiple ESPN, you know, a lot of articles coming out that the surveillance video was captured at the place where the bet was made, which was the Bet MGM Sportsbook at the Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati, the Reds Ballpark, which we looked it up. It's, it looks like it's within like a restaurant and there's kind of couches, lounges, sitting around some TVs. The individual who placed this bet was caught on surveillance communicating with Bohannon while he was making the bet. And I just think that this is, I mean, it was very quick. I mean, this came out a couple of days ago. Bohannon gets fired really fast. Everyone was thinking that it was too quick, but I mean, amidst that, I mean, that alone, you've got Bohannon, what, using the dugout bullpen phone to make a, a, a call, <laughs> a outside call to this, this better. I, I mean, what do we make of this? How perfect is it that you can enter that sports book at Great American Ballpark off of Pete Rose Way? <laughs> Unbelievable. Obviously a crazy story. Really just an interesting insight into how these things kind of get policed, right? There's no national regulatory body for irregular betting. And so it, it was one entity in Las Vegas that flagged it. And then Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, New Jersey like took it off the board and we're no longer taking bets on it. That Ohio one is what triggered the article on ESPN from David Purdom, I believe is the the reporter's name. And he's been doing a great job covering this. But yeah, like you said, this Alabama series with LSU, number one LSU, they ended up getting swept in Baton Rouge. But the the key point there is that the the scheduled starting pitcher, the Friday night pitcher, the ace, Luke Holman, was scratched just an hour before the game. And so if you knew that beforehand, maybe you got better odds on LSU winning because Holman pitched tonight in the first game without Coach Bohannon against Vanderbilt, who's obviously a traditional power. And Holman went seven innings. He struck out seven and he only gave up two earned runs. So this is a guy that clearly is good enough that he could move the line and Maybe it did end up mattering because LSU won that game eight to six. They held off a, a late rally from the tide. I think the key there is it's, it's an hour before, right? It's not uncommon for a late scratch that, that might have happened, right? With the pitcher, you know, especially I remember the articles are showing like uh, that the relief pitcher who had to come in to actually start that game was told an hour before. And that kind of sucks, right? Especially because he's a relief pitcher. Now he's being told that he has to start in the game against powerhouse LSU. So that in and of itself, the, he's probably shaking a little bit, but the timing there is crazy, but it's also this connection piece of why Bohannon was making this and how he was getting it. So Steve, what do you think of that? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it raises a lot of questions about the scope of this whole thing, right? So uh, one, who is this better? What is his relationship with Coach Bohannon? How much does Coach Bohannon know about what this better's intentions are? What's he going to do with the information? Is Coach Bohannon participating in the profits made from this betting scheme? Are there other individuals that are placing smaller bets? Has this been has this better been placing smaller bets over the course of the season? Did they just get a little bit too greedy 
and finally placed one bet that was too big and got caught. It's hard to believe that it was the first time they tried something and they tried it with a large denomination enough to throw up a red flag in the eyes of the gaming commission. So it raises all sorts of questions. I don't know if I guess you could to play devil's advocate, make the argument that, hey, maybe this better. He's at Great American Ballpark. Maybe he's a big baseball guy. Maybe he played college ball with Coach Bohannon and they like to talk shop about what he's doing with the roster, how the team's looking, what's going on in the game tonight. And Bohannon's going to say he didn't know the guy was sitting at a sportsbook placing a bet. I find it hard to believe, but Bill, those are those are all the factual details we need to really understand to understand the scope of this thing. Yeah, I would hope that they investigated that that question being particularly important and and, and a great point. Uh, I, I hope that they looked into that before they made the decision. But my guess is that with the speed that this came to a, a resolution, that it was pretty cut and dry. It's obvious that the team's going to have policies associated with any gambling activity, whether there is intent or not, I'm sure is not particularly relevant. But aside from just termination at Alabama. I mean, there are other legal ramifications here that come along with the passing of inside information and the use of that to, to garner a profit on the backs of, of sports books and, and other law-abiding bettors. So who knows where this could ultimately go. I think what's crazy is, is how swift this all happened. We talked about the quick action, pretty cut and dry, but also... I mean, kudos to the the sports gaming industry for, you know, throwing this red flag up and then completely halting the entire state of Ohio, which is which is crazy to me because we've got LSU Bama not happening in Ohio. The bet was placed in the Cincinnati Reds stadium in the in the, the BMGM sports book. We've got was it the Louisiana State Gaming Commission that kind of threw the flag up. And then all of Ohio was halted in terms of any sort of bets being placed on this LSU-Bama game. So it's crazy how fast that this industry is just being – it's so closely monitored and there's so much happening that this can still happen or is still being attempted to happen. And it's just crazy to me. I believe that there was just in late March that the gambling industry adopted – new responsible marketing codes that prohibited sports books from partnering with colleges to promote sports wagering. So that's another layer onto this where large universities like, you know, we were talking about Colorado Boulder, they had an agreement with PointsBet. Those would no longer be allowed per these new marketing codes. All of the gambling rules associated with college sports, I find to be interesting. I mean, you could argue about their their effectiveness um, or the deterrent effect that some of them have. Like in New York State, you can't place bets on in-state college games. I get the thought and the theory that the players that are in-state maybe are easier to access and persuade. However, in the year 2023, it seems like it's just as easy to do that from any place, even outside of state borders. So Ultimately, I think it's best to protect the the student athletes and the institutions, but I'm not sure how you're going to protect against all of the interests involved when you're dealing with so many large sums of money and sports gambling craze in America. That's not going away. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we see that the more, especially not even in the realm of of college NIL deals when when we see legislation passed in these states, but also high school as more high schools kind of have the the legalization for state high school NIL deals. Our last topic, Virginia, my home state, 
became the 28th state in the country to approve some sort of rules and regulations surrounding name, image, and likeness deals for high school athletes. The interesting thing I think here is that there are some regulations that you haven't seen maybe at the college level, uh, including that athletes must notify in writing the principal or athletic director of their high school within 72 hours of entering the agreement. Um, And then some things that you have seen that they can't partner with certain vice industries. Uh, Steve, have you worked with any high school students yet? Uh, Is that something that's on your radar? Yeah, we've we've had some interactions with high school students. You're putting me on the spot here to remember if we had any agreements with high school students. But I know in the states where where it is permitted, they all have that that 72 hour rule. I believe that that is dictated by federal law. The Sports Agent Responsibility and Trust Act, 15 U.S. Code Chapter 104, and there is that language in there. I believe somewhere. 72 hours. Yeah, it's subsection. B, required disclosure by athlete agents to student athletes. And then it also has a required subsection three of that required language. Uh, The disclosure must contain yada, yada, yada within 72 hours after entering into this contract or before the next athletic event, which you are eligible to participate, uh, you must notify the athletic director. So yeah, that comes from federal law, actually. I don't see any issue with extending the uh, availability of the NIL market to high school students. I think it's important that in these pieces of legislation, there are safeguards in place. I I think as long as they're allowed to participate, you can maximize the sort of regulation um, that is involved to ensure that they're being protected. They're doing it in a responsible way. I think it can be a really good learning exercise for a high school student before they go and become a a student athlete at a major, even or even not a major uh, institution in college that give them those life skills, um, give them ability, give them that ability. I think it's only going to serve them well um, in the next several years and even beyond then. So I, I think we can wrap there. We had some great conversations, Steve. Really, really appreciate you joining us. Really great to have you on. We've, we've talked about Atlas for a while now. We're, we're going to put Atlas in the show notes too. Definitely check them out. Any athletes listening that might need you know some representation, definitely uh, hit up Steve. We'll put his contact information too. You know, hit, find him on uh, social media and uh, Atlas. And definitely appreciate you, you joining us, Steve. Yeah. Thanks, guys. It was a real pleasure. Hope to come back sometime before too long. And Taryn, you're giving me another reason to root against Duke. I thought we got along really well. Yeah. You know, everyone's got their flaws, man. It was 90% good stuff. Don't worry about it. All right. So for all of us here at Conduct Detrimental, Dan Lust, Dan Wallach, Taryn, myself, and our good friend Holly, who is studying for her finals, wish her some good luck. We will see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.